We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular commentator Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Dimitri Bures of the China Post. Hi there, good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing questions remaining over whether Honduras will sever diplomatic ties with Taiwan in favour of Beijing following the country's presidential election, the KMT's pending reopening of an office in Washington, D.C., the Taipei Shanghai Forum, a report by the human rights group Safeguard Defenders concerning Beijing's efforts to undermine Taiwanese sovereignty by extraditing Taiwanese nationals from numerous countries to China, and calls for a boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics. But we'll begin with the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Thursday, rolling out its coronavirus vaccine booster shot program. Health Minister Chen Shih-jong says the opening of the program will enable people in certain high-risk categories to get a third vaccine dose. Now, the booster shots are only currently being given to people in categories one through three of the government's vaccine priority list who received their second shot at least five months ago. Those categories include medical workers, epidemic prevention workers in central and local government, and people at a higher risk of exposure to the disease due to their jobs. The health minister says that the central government officials are being excluded from the list currently unless they have to make frequent visits to hospitals or government quarantine centres. Figures show that an estimated 60,000 people are currently eligible for the third dose and the Moderna vaccine brand is being offered at this stage of the rollout. Those eligible for a booster shot don't have to go through the government's vaccination platform and can instead make appointments directly with hospitals offering the vaccine. Now the move comes of course as the epidemic command centre, like much of the rest of the world, currently is taking steps to guard against the Omicron coronavirus variant. Health officials are also saying that booster shot programme could be expanded as early as January the 1st of next year to other categories in the government's vaccine priority list. Now, although the general public will be allowed to choose a preferred vaccine as a booster shot, health officials are advising against mixing and matching the Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech jabs. And the health minister warned earlier this week that the Central Epidemic Command Centre is encouraging those who have been inoculated with the two jabs of Moderna or BioNTech to get the same vaccine as a booster. However, it's also recommending that the AstraZeneca mix and match open, option rather is open, saying, well, if you've already had an AstraZeneca, you can also have a booster shot of an AstraZeneca. While booster shots are timely efforts to stop further infections, though, the Epidemic Command Centre this week also announced that its plans to loosen quarantine protocols for travellers entering Taiwan ahead of the Lunar New Year holiday remain unchanged. And speaking to reporters, the Health Minister described the government's coronavirus border protocols as being essentially set in stone and he stressed that there's concern that any changes to the current regulations could result in major problems to disease prevention measures. Now of course quarantine regulations are set to be loosened from between December the 14th through February the 14th in anticipation of the large number of Taiwanese nationals returning to the island ahead of the Lunar New Year holiday and the government will be allowing returnees to spend the first 10 or 7 days of their mandatory quarantine at a hotel or government facility before finishing the rest of their quarantine period at their own residence. However, the Epidemic Command Centre has said that the revised quarantine policy is not open to travellers who have been or transited through key high-risk countries in the two weeks prior to visiting Taiwan. Now, such travellers are still required to stay in government facilities for the full 14 days of the quarantine. The countries currently, as we're recording this show, listed as being key high-risk due to concerns over the Omicron variant of the coronavirus are South Africa, Botswana, Namibia, Lesotho, 
Isawanti, Zimbabwe, Malawi, Mozambique, Egypt and Nigeria. So, Brian, a couple of things there. Now, booster shots are coming out. And no plans to change the plans to loosen quarantine regulations for the Lunar New Year. And, of course, I did stress, Brian, that the Omicron variant is now only affecting these countries, but of course that could change in the next coming weeks. That's right. And so if that does change, we'll see if there is a push to tighten border policies. I think that particularly the government is upset of uh, afraid of upsetting voters as well as stakeholders. For example, the hotel industry, travel industry, uh, etc., making these arrangements for quarantines, uh, airline industry as well, because it's been hit by COVID, etc. And so I think this is why the government is treading lightly on this issue and they're reluctant to change course. Uh, but if there is a public demand, I think then there will be uh, the possibility that we'll see a change in policies. I think it's really up in the air. But for now, it looks like the Tsai administration will maintain current policies and we'll see if it takes flack for doing that. I mean, this provide, provides a convenient political target to attack, for example. Dimitri. Well, first, we should remember that the current restrictions are the result of the uh, Delta variant that spread earlier this year. So, well, I wouldn't book uh, ride flown tickets for my uh, winter holiday right now or uh, hotels uh, for my next uh, uh, um, uh, uh, vacation because things can change very quickly. And um, we are we will have a, a referendum uh, in a few weeks. So maybe uh, authorities are carefully waiting for to see the latest developments and the results from uh, tests uh, about the spread of the uh, Omicron virus. And then pending on the results they receive, they will make some policy adjustment maybe uh, in a week or two from now. But because of the uh, upcoming uh, referendum, it's likely that authorities will wait a bit longer before making some major announcement and changing uh, current regulations. And what about the booster shots, Dimitri? Of course, the rest of the world is doing this now and Taiwan is gradually starting. Well, the question is when. When we get those uh, booster shots, will we have enough booster shots to, um, all to, to for all those who need those shots first? But there might be more shots in the future. The uh, Omicron was maybe uh, there was there were booster shots for the Delta variant. Uh, Omicron, there will be uh, booster shots in the future in a couple of months. So, well, the question is when they will come to Taiwan and whether the government will succeed in procure those uh, booster shots on time. Uh, for the Taiwanese population. And Brian, apparently the government have said they've ordered 5 million doses of the AstraZeneca specifically for the booster shots. And they've also ordered like several million doses, I believe 25 million doses of the Moderna for use in booster shots. Uh, that's right, yeah. And so I think it's quite interesting because that illustrates a strategy relying on Moderna, which was seen in domestic political discourse as one of the safer vaccines, quote unquote. Uh, but then because you're having mixing and matching, you need also need to make sure you have adequate supplies of which vaccines can be paired with which vaccines. Uh, then it is still a question for the Omicron variant. Do existing vaccines, are they effective regarding this? And the data is too early to tell. Um, but what is actually quite interesting, too, is because with Moderna, the booster shot regulations for internationally are for a half dose. And so this might actually mean that Taiwan ends up having a surplus of vaccines. 
Uh, that being said, I think we will see some of the same controversies that broke out the first time regarding vaccination, regarding vaccination order, who gets vaccinated first, etc. If anyone violates this, uh, it does look the government is is trying to go in route the same order, uh, prioritizing medical personnel, the elderly, vulnerable groups, etc. But then, you know, I think that there will still be criticism, perhaps, regarding the rollout. And I think particularly with concern about the Omicron variant, will these vaccines arrive on time is yet another question, because it is possible then that larger, wealthy, powerful countries will begin hoarding vaccines again, and this will result in delays shipping them internationally. But Brian, do you see the public rushing out to get a booster shot? So I think it's also interesting, too, because it really depends on if Omicron is perceived as a threat within Taiwan, because things are getting back to normal. People are cautious, yet... Now COVID, again, cases are at zero. It's been nearly like a month. And so COVID is again thought of as an, an external threat. Will this actually encourage people to get booster shots? That's a question. I mean, according to the Central Epidemic Command Center, vaccination rates are slowing among some demographics, such as the elderly. I checked yesterday. I think it is at 78% first dose vaccination, 58% second dose vaccination currently. But it does look like getting that 78% higher, is there's still challenges there. And of course, Dimitri, they came out this week, the Central Epidemic Command Center, they came out on Thursday and said to boost the vaccination rate, they're going to possibly start using branches of a well-known supermarket chain here in Taiwan. Well, we've heard of the same reports in the US uh, at one point where they were just launching the uh, uh, the vaccination campaign. They used a famous uh, retailer to uh, push and to they had vaccination uh, at the retail at the store, but. I'm just concerned about uh, the retailer you just mentioned in Taiwan, given the size of these uh, supermarkets and stores, would they have enough space to accommodate not just the person who wants to get vaccinated, but the whole team that needs to be around? Um, You need to prepare the vaccines. There are lots of steps you need to take before you get your vaccination shot. So I've been to those uh, supermarkets in Taiwan. They're usually pretty crowded. So it would be, well, maybe a nice picture for the media when you have someone getting vaccinated in between vegetables and uh, <laughs> and the coffee and uh, doing some shopping. Well, it looks nice, but I'm not sure if it's that convenient. That's true, because it goes bright in America, but it was Costco. Yes. Was the big, it's got, that's a hypermarket. But mm. of course, we have PX Mart or Chen Lien, as it's called here, doing it. And like Dimitri said, it's much smaller. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. And so that's a, a question. I think what is also interesting is that depending on certain vaccines, they have issues with storage. You know, it has to be kept at very cold storage, etc. cetera. Uh, can you actually do that in terms of delivering to these various uh, supermarkets, hypermarkets, etc.? But I do think that we will probably see the ability to conduct vaccinations without making an appointment and to have that more regularly available at these different places, whereas currently that's not the case. And so will that increase vaccination? That's a question. And why are they doing this? I mean, surely the people that haven't... Everybody knows you go to a local clinic... Mm. to get a vaccine. Why do people need to go to the supermarket to do it? It's a question. I think that particularly Taiwanese society is oftentimes very driven by this pursuit of convenience. Uh, I mean, we have convenience stores everywhere, maybe more than necessary. Uh, I wonder if that's what happens next, even. Vaccinations at convenience stores. That'd be interesting. Frightening is a word I'd use for that, Brian. Anyway, moving on, and the government on Wednesday of this week congratulated Honduran opposition leader Xiomara Castro on her victory in the country's presidential election, saying that Taiwan is looking forward to working with the next government of the long-term Central American ally. Now, according to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Taiwan's ambassador to Honduras, Diego Wen, personally extended the congratulations to Castro on behalf of President Tsai Ing-wen and the people of Taiwan. Castro, though, has repeatedly stated her intentions to sever ties with Taiwan 
Taiwan in favour of Beijing if elected. But Foreign Minister Joseph Wu earlier this week insisted that his office has been holding in-depth conversations with Honduras's presidential candidates and he stressed that he doesn't believe the outcome of the election will have any major impact on diplomatic relations between the two sides. And this morning, Taiwan Time reporters, Reuters rather, reported that a high-ranking ally of Honduras's incoming President Castro is being cited as saying the country doesn't need to establish diplomatic ties with China if its relations with the United States remain stable. Now, according to Salvador Nasralla, who is set to become one of Castro's three vice presidents, there are no relations with China. Relations continue with Taiwan. And Reuters also quoted Nasralla as saying that Honduras's trade ally, close ally, historical ally is the United States. And we don't want to fight with the United States. The United States is our main trade ally. Needless to say, China was a bit irked by all this because, of course, it's accused Washington in the past of what it's been describing as arm-twisting in Honduras as the United States has been seeking to ensure that the Central American country maintains ties with Taiwan, Brian. So, obviously, you know, Taiwan being dragged into a bit of a, a spat there with Honduras and China. Yeah, it's quite interesting because uh, Castro is a leftist candidate. Uh, her husband, Manuel Zelaya, was a previous president, and he sought to imitate the policies of Hugo Chavez, for example, within so, you know just a similar context. And so you can see why an alignment between Castro and China might be politically expedient or would make sense uh, compared to the, the uh, National Party, the right-wing party, which was defeated. Uh, and in November, we just saw a visit by, by Juan Her- Orlando Hernandez, the uh, then outgoing president of Honduras, which seemed intended to shore up ties with Taiwan. But to try to push for a mandate of change from uh, the the Hernandez presidency, it would make sense to kind of switch ties. However, suddenly we're seeing this reversal. Um, Castro also raised eyebrows with a tweet, responding to a tweet from Tsai congratulating her. And so I think the major factor here is actually the U.S. in terms of the geopolitical alignment of the world currently between the U.S. and China in the era of the quote-unquote new Cold War. And so Honduras does not actually want to upset the U.S. by breaking ties with Taiwan currently. And this also shows to what extent Taiwan's a wedge issue or a way in which countries can signal their geopolitical alignment. Uh, and I think that aligning with Taiwan in this way is to avoid upsetting the U.S. And of course, Dimitri, um, lawmakers in Washington have said they will try to pressure certain allies of Taiwan not to sever ties with the island? Well, I think that's the, the most important uh, development we've heard. In, in, uh, we, because we've heard, we've heard this story so many times. But uh, there have been discussions with uh, authorities in Honduras and the fact that the uh, former president uh, gave visit Taiwan two weeks ago, I think that was in preparation or m- maybe to deliver a message to Taiwan and I believe it also went the other way around. Taiwan delivered a message to maybe leaders in Honduras about their willingness to keep up with these uh, special ties. It's been so many, so many decades already. But as long as the U.S. and because this time the U.S. is strongly opposed any other countries to severe ties with Taiwan, and Honduras needs to improve its ties with the United States. I think it's likely, I mean, we could potentially say that we could be safe for the for the first few months, for, for now, I think. And Brian, is Beijing likely to take this lightly and lying down? 
I think not. And so it is a possibility that Beijing will try to retaliate or to pressure Honduras in some form. And I think this will also be kind of an interesting terrain going forward. Uh, sometimes this actually does have the opposite effect that when you try to pressure a country, they instead strengthen their position on whatever Beijing is trying to get them to back down on. That's also a possibility. Um, I think it's also possible then that Castro is being deliberately ambiguous or strategically ambiguous on this issue currently. Uh, avoiding explicit statements for the first few months might make sense until she is able to consolidate power, uh, strength, figure out the relation with the U.S., etc. Then you can have a much more concrete stance on whether you are going to act on these campaign promises. Uh, it's also a question to me if, if voters in Honduras will actually hold her feet to the fire on those campaign promises, saying, well, you promised us this change in recognition. We view this as economically better for Honduras, so you better do that. That's also another factor, I think. And Dimitri, do you think the people of Honduras, it's a pressing matter whether their country and their government supports either China or Taiwan or they have other pressing issues they would sooner the government focused on? Well, like on many, many countries, they're facing this uh, COVID pandemic is maybe the, mace, the the biggest challenge for them. And maybe reviving the economy, it's maybe the second biggest challenge. And in this case, uh, China maybe has a card to play because by opening its market, then trying to attract uh, business entrepreneurs or exports from Honduras to China, maybe that could help convince convince some um, local, local politicians to switch ties. But the, the situation is not that simple this time. And with the support of the United States, uh, we can confidently say that over the next few months, things should stay as, as they are right now. And the KMT this week announced that its Deputy Director of International Affairs, Eric Huang, is now in the US Capitol, helping to put the final touches to the reopening of the party's office in Washington, D.C. The office, of course, was shuttered in 2008, shortly after former President Ma Ying-jeou took office, when communications between the two sides were handled solely through the island's representative office there instead. Now, according to the KMT, it's hoped the office will bolster two-way communications between the party and policymakers in America. Now, local media has been citing the KMT Deputy Director of International Affairs are saying that he plans to kickstart interactions with US officials and the KMT and they will eventually select different officials to communicate with the US on various issues affecting ties between Taiwan and America. Now, Huang is dismissing reports that the timing of his trip to the US to prepare the office is related to the pending KMT-backed referendum on the import of US pork products containing ractopamine. And he's been cited as saying that his preparations have nothing to do with the domestic political agenda. And he says the issues slated to be handled by the KMT's office in Washington will not only focus on politics and diplomacy, which will also include national defence, healthcare, agriculture, energy, science and technology. Now, the KMT has not said who will serve as its top representative to Washington, but party chairman Eric Jew is reportedly planning to attend the office's inauguration next spring as part of a wider tour of the United States. So, Brian, interesting. Eric Huang, they're saying the opening of the, the timing of the opening of the office really has nothing to do with Taiwan's domestic political agenda. Yeah, I think particularly uh, this has been floated for years and years and years. Will the KMT open a U.S. office? And various obstacles have been cited are, well, the cost that this costs a lot at the time in which the KMT views itself as strapped for money. Uh, that there's no need to do so, that this can be conducted through other means uh, within diplomacy with the U.S., through other means, through, for example, uh, local organizations of Taiwanese in the U.S., etc. But finally, this has happened, and this has been proposed under previous chairs, for example. This was floated in under under Johnny Chang. Uh, there's a discussion of, of just would it actually happen finally. Uh, the KMT surprised by even passing a, rec uh, a resolution, which the DPP also signed on to, that 
it should seek the establishment of formal diplomatic ties with the U.S., etc. And so this raises the question of the relation between the KMT and the U.S. And something that has been raised in previous years is that perhaps the KMT losing the uh, favor of the U.S. or being unable to maintain strong relations as a party with the U.S. is because it has no representative office in the U.S. That doesn't mean there are not a lot of KMT politicians that are uh, travel to the U.S. I mean, that always happens before elections, or that there are younger, particularly KMT politicians who are doing grad school in the U.S. and conduct diplomacy for the party in that way. But not having a formal office is definitely a blow against it. Well, you're right. The, the, the reopening has been in the pipeline for a long time. And, well, the major concern, as you said, was the cost, the cost of having a team, uh, officials, a small office uh, in, in, in Washington, D.C., where I believe, I believe were too high back then. So, Maybe the situation has changed now under the new KMT leadership. Uh, the KMT, even though they didn't have an office for years in the U.S., uh, because of uh, the KMT leadership and many of the KMT uh, senior leaders actually studied or uh, studied in the U.S. and held positions in various positions in Taiwan government, they still were able to make phone calls to contact leaders directly to express their views. But having uh, their own people there to lobby, to reach, to talk to uh, lawmakers, maybe that well, that's the kind of things the KMT needs right now. The opposition needs to increase the communication with the US and explain clearly the goals of uh, recent, like the upcoming referendum. Uh, they need to clearly state their goals and how will it potentially impact the US government. And Brian, what do you think the KMT's most touching issues will be? I mean, they said national defence, healthcare, agriculture, energy, science and technology, as well as politics and diplomacy. Where do you think the KMT is going to take its new office and say, right, we're going to talk about this first? Yeah, so I think there are quite a lot of issues on its plate currently. Um, I think particularly awkward maybe trade relations with the U.S. because of the fact that it is currently pushing for a referendum on ractopamine pork from the U.S. And the KMT is currently the party that is opposed to that. And so that might be a little awkward in some respect. But I think the KMT will then try to reassure the U.S. on security issues that it's not so pro-China, not so pro-unification, etc., uh, in order to try to win back support of U.S. policymakers in that way. Um, but then I think it's a question for the party in terms of its relation to U.S., because this is also a matter of domestic internal politics. Within the party, there is sometimes the backlash of strengthening relations with the U.S., uh, because of the fact that it is the pro-China party, the claiming that if you build stronger relations with the U.S., this will upset the balance between the U.S. and China. Uh, and so Eric Chu, for example, has faced criticism of that within the party, the view that he is too pro-American, sometimes from the deep blues as verges on the conspiratorial, uh, pointing to his background studying in the U.S., despite the fact that there are so many KMT politicians that have done so, claiming that he's a CIA plant within the party, etc. The kind of conspiracy-minded deep blues will actually claim this, and this comes up in, in domestic discourse within the party. And so I think this might actually be used as part of attacks against Eric Chu at a time in which deep blue views do seem increasingly prominent within the party. Well, li likely, uh, you, you, we need to look at this. Uh, setting up an office now in the, in the, over the next few weeks, uh, having the grand opening maybe in spring next year, it might take a year or two or more uh, to have things running the way the KMT maybe wants. So maybe they're shot, they're more into the mid-long term. Uh, they may be looking to... Uh, clearly stating uh, uh, the, the, the KMT chairman's goals and policy goals uh, to the U.S. government ahead maybe of the next presidential election. So on the short term, well, they really need to restart from scratch. So, well, they're going to 
they're going to need a couple of weeks and months to have things running in the US. And Brian, do you think there's any sort of concerns about the, the KMT in Washington at the moment? Because of course, Washington's a bit rapidly anti-China. Yeah, that's right. And so the KMT could actually in itself come under scrutiny um, if Republican lawmakers that are hawkish on the China issue, for example, are engaging with the KMT. That raises these questions. Uh, because I think what is quite interesting is that with the Thai administration power, with strengthening U.S.-Taiwan relations, the KMT has not really come up in this way. And so the KMT, uh, what the U.S. stance on the KMT is, will become more clear at this time. And so this might not actually be the most like, convenient time for the KMT to do this either. And so regarding that point specifically, just having better relations with the U.S., it might have helped to have an office there to begin with in order to avoid the situation. Entering now might actually not be a very good window of opportunity to do so. I don't think so. You you can't argue whether you're pro-China or anti-China. This is a Taiwan issue. KMT is pro-business. So if they're going to the U.S., it's meant to maybe push business ties with the United States. It's not just about pro-China or anti-China. These are the, the names, the stickers we put on people in Taiwan. But is it that relevant in the United States? Uh, but then the question is the ractopamine issue. I mean, the KMT was pro-ractopamine imports under the Ma administration. It is switched tack under... Tie with Thai in power because of the fact this is to oppose the DPP. It's funny because this at that time the DPP the was anti anti yes, so both parties have so things positions keep changing. On this. And, uh, well, but it's we not simply to... a matter of being pro-business. And we'll leave it there right now, gentlemen, because we have to take a short break, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week told Beijing that it has no jurisdiction over Taiwanese nationals as Taiwan and China are not subordinate to each other. The statement follows the release of a report by the human rights group Safeguard Defenders and that report stated that more than 600 Taiwanese nationals were extradited from numerous countries to China between 2016 and 2019 and the human rights group described those extraditions as part of Beijing's efforts to undermine Taiwanese sovereignty. Most of the extradited to China were facing charges, of course, of involvement in telecom fraud, which, of course, we talked about once upon a time several years ago quite a lot on this show. Now, according to the Foreign Ministry, while the government respects the jurisdictions of other countries, it also seeks to ensure that Taiwanese nationals are able to assert their rights during judicial investigations and request that they be transferred back to Taiwan for investigation. However, officials are saying that Beijing usually pushes local judicial authorities to deport such suspects to China for political reasons. Now, the Mainland Affairs Council on Thursday can Confirm that 666 Taiwanese nationals accused of telecoms fraud and other crimes have in fact been extradited to China from around the world. And according to Mainland Affairs Council Minister Chou Tai San, Beijing began ramping up its efforts in 2016 to have Taiwanese nationals accused of crimes that involve victims from China sent there from third countries to face trial. Now, although Chou did not elaborate on why Beijing was stepping up or had stepped up such extraditions, he basically said, well, it's a change in Beijing's policy. But the minister did say that most of the Taiwanese nationals arrested overseas for their involvement in fraud cases since 2019 have in fact been repatriated to Taiwan for investigation and trial. And he told reporters that that's probably because the Chinese government knew that most of the illegal gains in those cases had been sent back to Taiwan in the first place and without working with Taiwan it will be very difficult to claim compensation for the Chinese victims. So of course Brian, this was an issue many years ago here, we debated on the show numerous times these extraditions from third countries to China of Taiwanese citizens and now this report comes out and apparently the government have also said that 666 Taiwanese nationals 
have basically been extradited to China. So the number of the beast there, one could argue. Yeah, that's right. Though I guess it is considered more auspicious as a number in, in Chinese. Um, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, and so this is an issue that has come up numerous times in past years, and it's interesting to see it suddenly come up after this report uh, that are being increasing discussions issue. The legality of this is is a matter of concern, but I think why this comes up as an issue is because of increasing international concern over Chinese influence, over Chinese use of international law enforcement mechanisms to try to enforce its will. Uh, this come, Safeguard Defenders recently also released reports on China's influence in Interpol, for example, and a few years back, the Chinese head of Interpol was suddenly arrested and disappeared, and etc. Then we're uh, and just just it was not very clear why it just seemed to circumvent these these international law enforcement procedures uh, that just the leader suddenly disappears in China and never appears again and so then this concern about deportation of Taiwanese criminals to China uh, this raised concerns about these countries and their relation to China and also the possibility of Taiwanese abroad being treated as though they were Chinese. Uh, there's concern particularly around this issue in recent times. For example, as flagged by Hong Kong, the Hong Kong protests in 2019 were began by the possibility of a bill that would allow for extradition of Hong Kongers to China. Uh, that was also in regards to the fact that there was a murder case that took place in Taiwan of a Hong Konger killing his girlfriend, and it was you can be expedited in in that way back to Taiwan because of the lack of an extradition agreement. And so, in many cases, these countries have extradition agreements with China, but not with Taiwan. And so that raises the question of where. Taiwan fits into this, and how Taiwan can defend the rights of its citizens abroad, even when they have committed crimes, when Chinese influence is also very prevalent. So, Dimitri, these efforts to extradite all these chaps and women, whoever they are, is made to undermine Taiwanese sovereignty, or do you think that's a bit of a stretch? It's a bit of a stretch. Uh, we, we, for sure, China has uh, always in mind this uh, one-China policy, but without an extradition agreement and without other agreements uh, about uh the, the 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 they will i believe they are investigations so they collect documents how do we exchange those documents so without a proper mechanism to exchange those information uh if those criminals were sent directly to taiwan they would obviously be not they won't they wouldn't be trialed in taiwan because the Spanish authorities or these uh, some of the the countries mentioned in the report, they wouldn't be able to send investigators to Taiwan. They wouldn't be able to conclude this investigation, and in the end, they would be released instead of being sent to jail. So there is no solution to this. Uh, uh, the lack of, uh, I mean. Direct relations between Taiwan and maybe all these countries and the extradition laws, but on the short term, we need they, they, they need to stop those criminals and need to extradite to extradite them. If those Taiwanese nationals were living in Spain and uh, using phones to scam people, at one point the the, the Spanish they can't keep those uh, Taiwanese nationals in Spain forever, and if they can't send them directly to Taiwan to be trialed, well. In this case, they need to send them back to China. And of course, Brian, the minister said basically most of them have been repatriated after 2019 because basically the Chinese government knew basically the money was coming back to Taiwan and without Taiwan's assistance, there could be no compensation paid to the Chinese victims. That's right. And the report also says that the uh, extraditions picked up after 2016, which suggests that this is because the Thai administration took power. And so this could be a move aimed at intimidating Taiwan during the Thai administration. But the argument then made by the Minister of Justice, Chiu Tai-san, is that 
China actually does need to work with Taiwan on these issues. Otherwise, they would not be sending these people back to Taiwan this way to try to recruit money. So what is interesting is that it is possible for there to be cooperation between Taiwan and China regarding fighting crime, etc. Uh, even with the murder case I mentioned regarding the Hong Kong uh, murder murderer that came to Taiwan, uh, there was actually initially contact and exchanges of information between Chinese and Taiwanese authorities. However, eventually this was suspended, it became politicized, etc. as an issue. And so then the argument I mean made by the Taiwan Station frequently is that there is room for cooperation with China on these issues if China is willing not to politicize the issue. And so in that sense, Tio Tai-san, that's what he would be arguing. I mean, there's also at the same time since 2016, the issue of Taiwanese that have disappeared in China. The number is 149. It is not very clear what happened to those people. And some of those include people that are thought to be detained on political charges, but not even people that are pro-independence. This includes some pro-unification advocates. And so this broader raises broader questions regarding uh, China and its use of sometimes what are, are uh, criminal charges or international bodies as a way to pressure Taiwan. And so I think this is the concern that is, is, is running through this. And I think particularly now, with the global community uh, becoming more harder on views towards China, it is possible Taiwan can gain more, more momentum on this issue when it did not push as heavily in the past. Well, when it comes to working with China or China working with Taiwan, they need, well, they can't even uh, pick up the phone and talk to each other. But what happened about the the the, the criminal that the, the, who killed his girlfriend in Taiwan, uh, the, the child of his girlfriend in Taiwan? Well, <clears throat> we haven't seen any improvements. And there was, I remember uh, back then when uh, he was released from prison, uh, there was the, just the issue was about whether he was able to take the plane to come to Taiwan or Taiwan would have to send someone to pick him up at the airport in Hong Kong. And they couldn't even agree on that. So both, in, in this case, both countries couldn't agree on anything. So without without um, any room for discussion, there is no way we can solve this issue. I'm so sure. there was actually communication between both sides in terms of police, in terms of communicating, exchanging evidence, etc. But this communication was abruptly suspended early in the case. Later on, after the protests, when it became politicized and they were sending him back, the issue is that the claim was that he would voluntarily turn himself over to Taiwan's authorities. Taiwan dispatched its own officers to Hong Kong to pick him up, to receive him and take him to custody. China would not allow that. And so then that's the reason why he stayed in Hong Kong and did not come over. Voluntarily coming to Taiwan, that was not it. Would, it not being allowed to take him into authority within Hong Kong. And let's stay with cross-strait issues. And the annual Taipei Shanghai Forum took place this Wednesday, held virtually. The talks lasted for 90 minutes and saw representatives from the two cities call for the strengthening of bilateral exchanges and ties across the Taiwan Strait. And speaking at the forum, Taipei Mayor Kerwenja emphasised what he described as his pragmatic approach to cross-strait ties, saying that conducting exchanges is better than disrupting exchanges and dialogue is better than confrontation. While Shanghai Mayor Gong Zheng touted the forum as a mechanism to enhance long-standing cross-trade exchanges and stated his intentions to support Taiwanese individuals and businesses seeking to develop in China. So that was pretty much the same that they always say at these forums. <laughs> but this year's forum was, well, there was a bit of controversy, wasn't there, Brian? Because apparently it cost a lot more than a forum. This was this was this forum, of course, for the last two years has been held virtually. Prior to that, they sent folks to Shanghai and folks from Shanghai came to Taipei. But of course, Brian it cost a bit more money to hold a virtual forum than it did to hold the in-person forum for some reason or other. 
Yeah, and so I think that surprises the public, which is maybe demanding more transparency on these issues to begin with. There's concern about just who's paying for this, why is this happening, etc. And this is a co you know Coenja initiative. Uh, these Shanghai Taipei exchanges began under Coenja, and it's become one of his signature pushes, actually, in terms of his mayoral administration. So it's not surprising to consider continue during COVID as a virtual event uh, for second year running. It didn't gain as much publicity this year, but I think then in terms of uh, how this the money is spent for during this, people expect lower costs during COVID, just because you don't actually have to send people going back and forth. And so then when you have video conferencing software used, I mean, for example, just the uh, the White House and their summit for democracy, a lot of it is just being held on Zoom. And so I think people just wonder, well, why can't you just use this kind of very easily available video conferencing software? Uh, in the case of Zoom, I don't think the government in Taiwan would be as happy with it. You, you're not allowed to use it in institutions. However, it's, it doesn't seem like something that would be that expensive. And so that raises these uh, questions and concerns. Well, the trick is whatever you do in the end, you have to justify and explain yourself why you did it actually. Well, the cost, well, the city government needs to explain and justify the cost to the city, uh, to the city hall, to the, to the, to the, to, 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 to the city council. So if the city councils believe that the, 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 the mayor didn't use the, these funds properly, he will have to respond to, he will have to respond to the council. Now, uh, I'm not sure if really right now in the media is that the issue is the cost of the forum or the, the very idea of having this forum, because uh, it's not, it was not the first time, but we are picking issues now with the city government and well, uh, well, the mayor, we believe the mayor has its own agenda and maybe he's trying to uh, to bring support from the blue and the green camp too for his future, maybe put the presidential campaign. But it's within his responsibilities to hold and organize such an event. So uh, the cost, well, we will see later what the, the city council has to say about it. But we haven't uh, heard so much about the comments and the content, what he said during the forum. Now that was all a bit hush-hush. No one really reported about that, Brian. That disappeared into a haze. Mm. Yeah, and I think uh, Coenja, as a politician, something he's not very good at is sometimes being transparent. When he's called on these issues, sometimes he doubles down and says, well, I don't really need to say anything. Uh, he's come under fire for this more recently. There was an incident in which a spokesperson for the Taipei city government, a woman known as Stratia, one of the younger politicians of his Taiwan People's Party, of Ko's party, uh, came under fire for using city expenses during election campaigning. And Ko's response was to remove her on the spot from her position. And so this didn't really play well with the city council because they did want transparency on that came as, across as a kind of heavy-handed maneuver. And historically, with the uh, Taipei-Shanghai exchanges, when Ko has been criticized, for example, for attacks on student demonstrators in 2017, they're demonstrating against the framing of Taiwan as part of China for this uh, for this forum by pro-China gangsters. He just defended the uh, issue, uh, did not really clear up allegations of, for example, uh, that this this was that there was cooperation between Taipei City Police and these gangsters, etc. He just defended as pragmatic and saying, well, you know, this was necessary to do. And so he's not the greatest at PR management. I think this this might come up as an issue. And before we go this week, opposition new power party lawmakers call on the government to boycott the 2022 Winter Olympics in China. Now, according to the new power party's lawmaker, Chen Jiahua, a boycott has to be considered because of persistent human rights abuses in China and Beijing's military intimidation towards Taiwan. And speaking to reporters, Chen argued that China is unfit to be the host country of the Olympic Games due to its disregard for democratic values and a boycott of the Games should take place. Now, the calls came after the NPB 
Lee introduced a resolution to the legislature earlier this month calling on the Cabinet to carefully assess and pay attention to international efforts to boycott the 24th Winter Olympics in Beijing and come up with a correct response. Now, that resolution is still pending negotiations. But the MPP lawmaker did stress that such a boycott will likely have no major consequences for Taiwan due to poor cross-strait relations. And she also stressed that no government officials are likely to attend the event anyway because it's in China, Brian. That's right. And this takes place at a time in which government officials such as Premier Su Jin Chong, Legislative and President Yoshi Kun, and Minister of Foreign Affairs Joseph Wu have been sanctioned by China, that they are not allowed to travel to China or conduct business in China, etc. It would be, in fact, a risk for Taiwanese government officials to travel to China, with the possibility they'll be targeted as advocates of Taiwanese independence or what have you. Um, there's the question then of Taiwan's participation in Olympics. It looks like I would assume that Taiwan probably followed the lead of the U.S. regarding its stance on the Olympics because of the fact that Taiwanese athletes will want to participate, but there may be a push for diplomatic boycott, etc. This is maybe similar to the notion in the U.S. of diplomatically boycotting the Olympics, but still potentially sending athletes. And so that raises questions, though. Particularly, uh, the MPP proposing this makes it easier for the DPP to get along with the bandwagon on this issue, taking a more sorry, harder position and then uh, in this way, that allowing for the DPP to kind of just go on board with what the MPP proposes. And so sometimes these parties have had a cooperative relation this way. Uh, but I think the KMT may perhaps take a stance against this issue. For example, when there were calls on Xinjiang cotton to boycott cotton produced in Xinjiang, the KMT claimed, well, there's insufficient proof that these camps exist. Therefore, we're not going to participate in this boycott. Well, the question is, uh, how many athletes are we sending to, to, to China? Uh, well, we've all try to find the exact number. We haven't come up with the exact number so far. So whatever the number, uh, we do believe that these athletes have properly trained for months and years. And it's a bit rough right now, just a few weeks ahead of the Olympics, just to tell them you're not going there because of that. Well, we've, we've known for years now that the Olympics will be, will be held in, in, in China. So it would be kind of a rush to announce this right now. Now, Taiwan, it's not a major issue for Taiwan, and it was actually unlikely that Taiwan sends, would send any officials um, to the Beijing Olympics. But I remember uh, back of back in the summer, during the, the, the Summer Olympics, the joy and the happiness of the Taiwanese people to see their athletes perform uh, during the Olympics. Well, we're not responsible for the organizer's action. And the Olympics have never been an exclusive club for democracies. So you have countries with lots of different kind of regimes, democratic or not. And because we joined the, uh, um, the IOC, we actually are willing to participate. So whether Taiwan should participate or not, given the size of the delegation we'll be sending to China, it's not that relevant. We should maybe see and look at other countries, how they will manage the situation. So it's interesting because of the fact that this has come up an issue uh, previously. I mean, for example, the referendum in 2018 on what name Taiwan participate in the Olympics under, that was voted down because of fear of Taiwanese being excluded from the Olympics if that happened. Yet, I don't think actually this would lead to athletes being prevented from going, particularly just at a time in which uh, there was a lot of excitement around the Tokyo Olympics, there was a lot of successes for Taiwanese athletes, it became a figure of national pride, etc. So I think it's more likely there would be a diplomatic boycott, but athletes would still be sent. Uh, at the same time, this raises concerns, particularly after Peng Shui, the uh, tennis star, just suddenly disappearing after accusations against Vice Premier Zhang, uh, Zhang Gali. And so then this, this raises the question of the safety of Taiwanese athletes. That will come up as a point in political discourse, even though I 
think it is unlikely China would target Taiwanese athletes participating in the Olympics. That would not look good for it on the international stage. Uh, but then particularly as Chinese Taipei and the name in which Taiwan participates on the, the Olympics, this became an issue during the last Olympics. I imagine it will also come up in a highly politicized during this Olympics. And so I think this might be a political a minefield going forward. And I think this will definitely become a, a big matter for domestic political contention in that way. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Dimitri Bures. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out the Taiwan This Week podcasts on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to one of our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.